You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Thucydides, an Athenian, wrote the history of the war between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians, beginning at the moment that it broke out, believing that it would be a great war and more worthy of relation than any that had preceded it. This belief was not without its grounds. The preparations of both the combatants were in every department in the last state of perfection, and he could see the rest of the Hellenic race taking sides in the quarrel, those who delayed doing so at once having it in contemplation. The evidences which an inquiry carried as far back as was practical all point to the conclusion that there was nothing on a greater scale, either in war or in other matters. In the same way that Thucydides uh, could not help but write about the great conflict of his time which drew in the entire world and as he also notes most of the barbarian world as well, uh, historians ever since the destruction of the Axis powers in 1945 have continued to examine and re-examine and reinterpret and in many ways refight World War II. Uh, this is an episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm Jordan Poss, an instructor of history at Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood, South Carolina, uh, occasional guest on Sectarian Review and sometime guest host of the Ancient Aside series from City of Man podcast with Coyle Neal and Ed Song. Joining me today is one of the historians who has most recently applied himself to examining and refighting World War II, the great conflict of our, uh, our generation, or at least the last several generations, uh, Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, author of The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. Dr. Hanson is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow in Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and the author of many books, including The Western Way of War, Infantry Battle in Classical Greece, and Carnage and Culture, Landmark Battles and the Rise of Western Power. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Hanson. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, setting the time aside. Um, I've, I've been struggling <laughs> exactly with how to begin our discussion because, uh, as you note in the book, uh, World War II is an immense subject. Uh, the, the, the body of the book runs to over 530 pages, and it was a really great read. Um, so I've kind of decided to punt and, and begin with a slightly different tack. Uh, I, I began by reading the opening paragraph of Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, uh, which you've written about extensively. Another of your books is um, uh, A War Like No Other, which is about the Peloponnesian War. Um, you're a classicist and uh, have done some of your most famous work on uh, Greek infantry combat uh, from uh, Epaminondas to Alexander to Thermopylae. Uh, very briefly for our listeners, how does a classicist get into military history? And, and from there, how did you get into modern military history? Well, you know, I was a philologist, so I was in a classical language program, and I didn't really want to spend my life examining ancient manuscripts or reestablishing the text of these cities or stop me. So I had grown up in a family of veterans, and uh, I grew up in sort of a conservative, democratic, rural family that was much different than the Malou or landscape at Stanford at that time. And so I asked my advisor if I could write about something militarily, which my thesis became a book, uh, Warfare and Agriculture in Classical Greece, but I had to do it philologically by using words. Um, what was the word for devastation? What was the word for incineration of the olive trees? So it was all philologically based. And I resented it at the time, but ever since then, I think it was a good training for military history to find out uh, that anytime you make a statement, where where is it supported in the text, and what is the word in a particular language for the concept that you're trying? So out of that narrow uh, training, 
I sort of got a broader interest, partly in reaction, as I said, to philology and the narrowness of Greek and Latin per se. And then I also grew up on a farm, and I farmed actively, so I was interested in agriculture. And so I was always interested in more pragmatic elements of the ancient world. How did people fight? How did they grow food? How much did armor weigh? How hard was it to destroy an olive tree? And, and I discovered there wasn't very many people talking about that because most people would go into academia in general and classics in particular tend to be they're interested in people like themselves in the past. So um, it was sort of wide open when I was a graduate student in the, uh, the uh, late 1970s. So the more I wrote and was interested in military history, the more there was seemed to be a vacuum. And it was, it was so, I, I, I guess I'm pleading guilty to a little bit of consciousness that it was there was a career move that when you wanted to write about the ancient world there was both popular interest and very little professional interest in writing about the ancient world in terms of war and military history and then after that i started to think of parallels and one thing led to another and suddenly i was writing about the roman world not just the greek and the medieval world and then modern times as well right yeah, that's that's one thing that I, I want to come back to is that the Second World Wars includes lots of um, comparisons and allusions to to classical parallels or maybe precedents to, to some of the events that happened in the in the 20th century. Uh, you briefly mentioned growing up in a family of veterans. Um, I was I, I grew up in a, a similar kind of family. Um, uh, many of my relatives didn't see <clears throat> excuse me didn't see actual combat, but many of them were within range of combat, whether in Korea or, or Vietnam or World War II. Um, could, you, could you briefly explain just, just how many of your, your uncles and cousins were involved in World War II and, and the impression that that made on you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think I, – I didn't know one that wasn't in, in the sense that my father flew 40 missions on a B-29 over Japan. And the person I'm named after, who was his first cousin, is adopted as his brother – was killed in Okinawa, Victor Hansen, the 6th Marine Division in combat. And then uh, my mother's side, she was a family of girls, but all of their first cousins were either in Patton's 3rd Army or they were in, fought in the Philippines. Um, her brother-in-law fought in the Aleutian. So when we would have Christmas or Thanksgiving, we'd have 10 or 12 of these people, and every single one was a combat veteran. And I think that was pretty common when you had an army of 12 and a half, almost 12 and a half million people in a population of 135 million that came of age in 1941. And so they were always talking about what was it like in the Philippines? What kind of planes did you use? And those guys would say, well, did you like the M1 in Europe? Or was the Sherman very good in Europe? It was a great against the Japanese. So they had all these practical uh, questions, comparisons, and for a young kid, an eight, nine, ten, I was fascinated by it, and I would read, and I'd ask them questions. They had a certain attitude, kind of a tragic attitude, that Definitely. they'd gone through something pretty terrible, and they you didn't have to be perfect to be good with their attitude. That made a big impression on me as well. Right, and 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 that's uh, many of their concerns, like you like you talked about the the effectiveness of maybe the Sherman or something that kind of. I hear echoes there of, again, the kind of very pragmatic concerns of those Greek farmer warriors like you were talking yeah. about earlier. Um, yeah, I think it was very very important to be pragmatic in terms of strategy, tactics, and operational 
management technology in World War II, and we were the best at it. Right, especially in comparison to completely amoral pragmatists like the Nazis. Um, yeah. And, oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, even in craftsmanship, I mean, if you looked at a tiger tank and a king tiger or even a panther tank, the clearances on the cylinder head, piston, um, the transmission ratio, ratios, the armor, the gun, they were all superior to a Sherman. But it, they were so intricate that they were not very easy to service or maintain. So in terms of just durability and production, you could build 50,000 Shermans far more easily than 1,600 Tigers. And a Sherman would probably have about an hour of maintenance for eight or nine hours on the road, whereas in the case of the Tiger, it was probably one-to-one. -one. Wow. And what that meant was it was we always hear it's, it was terrible. We put those boys in Lonson lighters is what they called Sherman, right. and they were lit up like Tigers, but they almost never met them. Right. And uh, when they did meet them, they could call in air support or artillery support. And in exchange, there were a lot of Shermans that were used against ground troops, and that was with their primary asset is that they didn't really face enemy tanks because they were so numerous and they relied on uh, ground support so much in Europe. Right. And they were okay. very, very practical and, and were very well, uh, they were durable and they were easy to maintain. We kind of forget that. We, we had to take all of our tanks 3,000 miles across the ocean. So that meant, you know, you really didn't want to build a 60-ton tank and try to use a crane to lift it on a Liberty ship. Right. <laughs> when you could get two Shermans for the price of one Tiger. Right. Well, I was I was very struck. I, w I was a tank geek as a kid, and uh, collected all kinds uh -huh. of stats. And and, and I, rem I remember the figures on the the, pr the production figures on the tigers, uh, in the neighborhood of thirteen hundred total. And and for whatever reason, I I never knew the figure on Shermans, and and it blew me away when I read it in the book of of what fifty thousand Shermans. Roughly fifty thousand. Yeah. I mean, in comparison and to thirteen hundred tigers, I mean. Yeah, and it was just. I mean, people forget that. Britain almost built as many tanks, about 30,000, as the Germany did. And the Soviet Union, if you count their tank destroyers, somewhere between 70 and 100,000 tracked vehicles, depending on how we define a tank. And so when you add up the Allies vis-a-vis -vis the Germans, which was the only of the three major Axis powers that built it, a good tank, it, it wasn't even close. And right. that was true of airframes and everything. They just made decisions. The V-1 rocket, the V-2 rocket, the Bismarck, or the Yamato, or the Musashi, in the case of super battleships of Japan's imperial fleet, that just didn't make sense. They were they lived in a world of fantasy. They were not pragmatic weapons, and they were not just, you know, they put all their eggs in one basket, but in a, in a basket that was so intricate and clumsy that, and, and ignored real, the reality of the battlefield. They paid a terrible price for that. Right. Uh, I think I've seen a slang term on the Internet for that awesome but impractical, uh, really, really impressive, but not actually going to work in the real world under real world conditions. Uh, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Um, speaking yeah. again of, of the, the many, many different places your relatives and, and even some of my relatives have served and the 12 million service personnel just in the United States, uh, all the places they served in the uh, in the war. Uh, the first thing that jumped out about me when I saw the announcement that the book was coming out was the title. Um, uh, some some people looking at it and talking to me about it have missed the plural, but the title is The Second World mm -hmm. Wars. Why should we talk about wars plural there? 
Well, there's two or three reasons that I try to make the argument for the plural. The first, of course, is it was the first truly global war. It, the combat landscape ranged from the English Channel in Europe all the way to the Volga River and from Norway in the Arctic Circle to the Sahara. And in Asia, the landscape was even bigger from the Aleutians to the Indian Ocean and from Wake Island or Pearl Harbor all the way to Manchuria. And so there was very little commonality. So the war in Burma had nothing to do with the war in the Sahara or the experience of battle or somebody fighting on a livery ship in the Arctic Ocean didn't understand what it was like to be a PT boat uh, off the Marianas. And second was that the alliances were so different that uh, a Bulgarian fighting on the Eastern Front really didn't know that the Japanese soldier in Manchuria or in Shanghai was on his side. There was no commonality. So each war was was almost autonomous. And then more importantly, till 1941, we never used the war, uh, the word Second World War, or in America, World War II, very much at all. People had raised the possibility, but it was usually the German-Polish um, War, the German-Norwegian War, the German-Danish War, the German. Dutch War, the fall of France, Yugoslavia, Greece, and suddenly those nine successful border wars were concluded by May of 1941. The Blitz had not quite not had not 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 knocked Britain out. So Britain was the only power facing Germany that had what is now the entire EU, and the war was really over. World War One was still known in 1941 as a Great War, and nobody quite saw that this was going to be a global conflagration until three things happened that year, 1941. The first, of course, was almost inexplicably the Wehrmacht invaded the Soviet Union, its erstwhile ally, on June 22nd of 1941 in the surprise blitzkrieg. And that brought in a country of 180 million people and pushed the battlefield space from the Polish border to the Volga River. And then second, the Japanese attacked not just us in Pearl Harbor, but brought Britain into the Pacific War with its attacks in uh, Malaysia and Singapore. And suddenly that brought a country of 70 million and that whole space in the Pacific. And then strangest of all, Italy and Germany declared war in the United States on December 11th. Had they not done that, it's not it's not at all clear that the United States wouldn't have just concentrated on the Pacific and tried to knock Japan out first. But once they were declared war, and of course they were declared war back on Germany and Italy and made the Europe first strategy sort of the reigning orthodoxy. So at that point, 1941, it was just a question of now we're in these second world wars are sort of coalesced into one big war. And, you know, it's one, two of the two billion people, one billion of them are involved uh, directly in the war. And it was a question, well, the Axis have had a head start all during the 30s. They have formidable militaries of 15 million. Uh, there's no finer soldier than the Japanese soldier or the German soldier. Will all of that experience and head start in preparation Will it be enough to win the war quickly, or will the Soviet Union and the United States and the British Empire now mobilize to a degree that they had not earlier and use their full potential, and will they insist on unconditional surrender? Because if they were to do all of that, they can win the war. And so 
I'd say by July 1942, the, the verdict was really up in the up in the air after six months because despite some setbacks at Midway, the Japanese uh, Imperial Marines and Army had landed on Guadalcanal in July of 42. They'd cut off basically easy access to Australia in a series of really devastating sea battles, five of them, off the coast of Guadalcanal. At one point in September of 42, the Enterprise was the only American carrier operating in the Pacific. In the case of the Germans, they were outside Stalingrad about ready to cut the Volga River both north and south. They were in the Caucasus. They looked down. They could see Grozny and the oil fields of the Caspian region at 90% of Soviet oil. They were about ready to cut off. And then Rommel was 70 miles from Alexandria, about 10 miles outside El Alamein. And so people were thinking, wow, they're going to pull this off, and then the Allies will have to concede defeat. But if you look at the, the map, is what I'm saying, every major European capital, whether it's Copenhagen or Madrid or Rome or Paris, was either under Axis occupation, part of the Axis, or part of a pro-Axis neutral country. And then suddenly the wind of mobilization came in, and the Allies kicked in, and by the end of 42, the Americans had landed in Algeria and Morocco, and the Soviets had surrounded the Sixth Army and destroyed it. We're going to destroy it. The German Sixth Army of 300,000 people stopped this, uh, the German advance. Despite the taking of Tobruk, El Alamein, uh, it was a turning point where Bernard Montgomery pushed Rommel back past Tobruk, put him on the run. And we had, as I said, landed in Morocco and Algeria, and the Marines landed in Guadalcanal, and the whole Axis fantasy sort of vanished within weeks. And then 43, 44, and 45 were sort of, oh, are we going to make the mistake as we did in World War I of allowing an armistice, or are we going to insist on an unconditional surrender to destroy these three fascistic regimes? And if we were to do that, it's going to be a lot more costly than World War I because we have to physically go into Rome or Berlin and Tokyo and destroy their ability to make war. Right. And that's what we did. Uh, the, uh, the 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 um, speaking of the the three things that occurred in 1941, uh, you you make a kind of the repeated point, and then it is as I talk through World War II with my students, I I really sometimes am flummoxed to explain why Hitler declared war on the United States when when there was really there there was so little coordination among the major Axis powers that it. it the Japanese had actually uh, the Japanese had actually signed a non-aggression pact with Stalin, correct? Yes, in April of 1941. Right. So, so the the idea that Hitler needed to really pay lip service to his his agreement with Japan by attacking the United States is is in with 70 years of retrospect, mind-boggling. Um, I mean, it, you, you point out several times in your book that that was an enormous mistake on Hitler's part. Uh, that brought to mind, again, speaking of the, the classical allusions throughout the text, uh, whether to Epaminondas or Themistocles or any number of great uh, ancient or medieval or early modern generals all the way up to uh, uh, Sherman and Lee and Grant. Um, one, I don't believe you make this comparison, but it, it kind of popped into my mind, and I wanted to, to see what you thought about it. Um, Thinking of Hitler and his repeated kind of serious errors, particularly his invasion of the Soviet Union, uh, someone who came to my mind was Crassus, uh, who invaded a yeah. major 
Asian land power, and Plutarch, Plutarch even very wryly says that Crassus made so many mistakes that even the famous Roman Fortuna couldn't save him. Um, did these did Hitler's mistakes were they just errors? Were they just bad guesses, or was there something a deeper flaw in Hitler and in Hitler himself? Well, both he and Mussolini, unlike. Churchill had been first Lord of the Admiralty in World War One, and Roosevelt, who'd been Assistant Secretary of the Navy, they had no administrative or strategic. Ex- they were celebrated combat veterans, but right. they were corporals. And so, in, the, in their way of thinking, they had a ground eye view of the war, which had some advantages. But they didn't look at the war in terms of strategic landscapes. And by that, I mean when they declared war on Britain the United States, the first question they should have asked is, can we destroy Detroit, or we can destroy Manchester, or we can mm-hmm. get on the other side of the Ural Mountains and stop Soviet tank defense. And yet Britain, uh, excuse me, Italy and Germany didn't build a four-engine bomber. They didn't build an aircraft carrier. And Japan didn't build a four-engine bomber. So they started an existential war without the ability to harm the source of power of their enemies, which is quite in contrast to the Allies, which from the get-go were going to go and had the ability to go into Rome and Berlin and Tokyo. The other thing is I think it's important as a historian to look at what they thought rather than we think with the benefit of hindsight. So Hitler went into the Soviet Union because it was his impression that the Soviet Army had done poorly in Finland in 1939. It had done poorly, and he felt, in Poland when they split the country in September of 1939. They had backed the wrong side in the uh, Spanish Civil War. They had purged or wiped out their officer class right before the war, uh, almost 300,000 Soviet officers. Mm-hmm. And in World War One, they had surrendered, the Russia being not the Soviets, but it was really the Soviet government that surrendered in World War One at Brest of Tavitz. So in his way of thinking, the French army had never surrendered. In fact, the Germans were 70 miles inside France, but no further. And so he thought, well, France will be the problem again as it was in World War One. But when France collapsed in seven weeks mm. in May and June of 1940, then Hitler said to himself, by the World War One ratio, then the Soviet Union will collapse in half that time. And that's why one of the reasons he went in. They were very greedy. I mean, the Japanese would have worked with them had they not been betrayed by Hitler under the non-aggression German-Russian of uh, August 23rd, 1939. Mm-hmm. We sometimes forget that the Japanese were fighting the Soviets, but after the Germans cut a deal behind their back, they were very upset, cut a deal with Stalin, which turned in later to the non-aggression pact. Right. But Germany thought that it could get to Moscow before the snows and be the first person to do that, even though Napoleon and Charles XI hadn't been able, either hadn't been able to get to Moscow or if they had got to Moscow, it was of no value given the vast expanse of population of Russia. Right. And and there's uh, always the issue I, – I love – you re- refer to it several times in the book as crackpot, which I agree completely. His crackpot ideas about, about Lebensraum and uh, the Untermenschen who lived in Russia and things like that. Uh, in what way did ideology drive – the different participants in World War II, and how did that make make the war so much more brutal? I, I don't think we've I don't think we've mentioned this, but between what sixty and eighty million people died. Um, yeah, it keeps going up. Uh, if you look at the history mm-hmm. of uh, reckoning of fatalities, it goes 
basically, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, we would have said 40 and then 50 and and now we're at 60 to 65. And it's largely because the Chinese and Russian archives are pretty, they were suppressed during the war, right. and either or inaccurate. But World War II was the largest human catastrophe in history, more than the Black Plague of the 14th century. And what was weird about it was that it was the first major war where the losers um, didn't lose as many fatalities as did the winners. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably somewhere around 50 million were uh, allied losses. The second thing was weird was the vast majority of that 65 million, maybe 55 million, were civilians, were out of uniform and unarmed. And so if we look at it that way, it was largely a narrative of German and Japanese soldiers killing unarmed people in Eastern Europe, Russia, and China. And that mm-hmm. was pretty much 50, 50 million people. And so that, that makes that gives us a little bit of pause to look at the war in that aspect. So we get we tend to focus on Dresden or Hiroshima, the firebombing of Japan, but that's all in a context that we don't fully appreciate. That they were killing twenty seven thousand people a day were dying in World War One every single day, World War Two every single day, and the vast majority of that twenty seven, about twenty three million. Excuse me, twenty-three thousand who were dying every day were Chinese and Russians, right? And they were being killed by the, the German and Japanese armies, right? And and for often ideological reasons, right? Um, I, I believe it's yes. the uh, I, I believe there's a a section near the end of the book where you point out the way ideology even drove the Japanese. We're, we're accustomed to associating that with the Russians and the the Germans, but uh, even the Japanese had their own racial ideologies that were driving them to uh, just butcher Chinese civilians, almost for the fun yeah. of it. Yeah, I think with the problem, of all of the problems with racial ideology, the worst in a strictly military sense was that it clouded judgment and eroded logic. So when Hitler or Tojo or Mussolini even, they had their own concept of Raza in Italy, when they looked at a military situation, they did not count uh, the number of vehicles, they did not count the logistics, they did not say in terms of their bombing capacity, how much money does it cost to deliver one pound of explosives over the enemy target. And had they done that, they wouldn't have built a V-1 or V-2, which were really absurd weapons, or built the Bismarck or built super battleships or, you know, rail guns that acquired 7,500 men to man. But if you were non-ideological and, and in comparison except for Stalin, Britain, and America were, then those were questions that were asked every minute of the war. Mm-hmm. And so Hitler would say, we don't have to worry about the Siegfried line not being completed because one German soldier is worth X amount of French people. Or he said, how can we be losing uh, in the East when I know that a German soldier is killing four Russian soldiers, each one? And they would say, well, they have 500 divisions. And he said, that's impossible. No army can ever do that. This is a backward country, so they were blinded by ideological stereotypes to being empirical. And in a war, the side wins usually who is the most empirical and can make the necessary changes in the most rapid fashion. Right. Um, spe- speaking of Hitler and Stalin, uh, a lot of recent books on the war that I've read, um, and, and that uh, it's a tendency that I, I've seen particularly in British historians, and it, it, it annoys me a little bit even where it's somewhat informative – uh, they tend to just have tables and tables and tables of, of production figures and um, 
uh, oil production, uh, you know, barrels and things like this. They almost they almost approach it from a technologically determinist point of view. But like the great Greek historians, you throughout your textbook, you, you do bring in industry, you do bring in production figures, which are important as as we've talked about. But you make that often secondary to again ideology, like like you said, um, the way ideology drove Hitler not to make sensible preparations for the invasion of Russia. Uh, you often invoke their personalities uh, of the participants and the, the leaders in the war. So from Hitler's kind of delusional, racist micromanagement or uh, Stalin's duplicity, because he is he's a really – the more I've studied Stalin, the, the shadier he becomes, and, and then to uh, Churchill's tenacity or Roosevelt's naivety, uh, what role do you think human character and human personality ultimately played in the outcome of the war? The way I look at that dilemma between technological or material determinism and human choice is that there's certain bounds. You're on a football field and there's sidelines. So the sidelines for the Allies were much greater because their GDP before the war of the three major belligerents had been about six times more than the Axis belligerents. Right. And they had a population of just about double, a little bit more than double. So they had more latitude for error. And the Germans had less margin, and the Japanese had less margin of error. But what, and if, that, if the Germans had have done everything right in the Japanese and the Italy, which is impossible, they might have been able to last for six or eight years. But within those parameters, they not only had less margin of error, but they committed far more mistakes. Mm-hmm. So what made the war end basically once we got in it within four years was that. Our supreme leadership, even Stalin, and you're right about his duplicity and cruelty, but the major decisions were, were pretty much on spot on. We didn't get ourselves into things like going into China or going into Russia. And when we did make a mistake, it was correctable. So right. we've made decisions on where we were going to fight, how we were going to fight, the transparent decision-making of the Joint Chiefs, some people in Congress, the president. Uh, military officers, and Stalin finally turned over most of the Soviet war effort to Zhukov and his generals, and Hitler got more and more um, micromanaging and less and less empirical. The same was true of the Japanese. And so their faulty or inadequate supreme leadership made uh, them lose even more quickly than they probably otherwise would have had they done everything right. And uh, they just I guess what I'm saying, an American general asks questions like, as I said, how much resources is necessary to get the desired result in a cost-benefit analysis? Uh, how far are the distances? How good are the logistics? Um, how practical is this? How much food are my men going to have? And the Axis generals more often said, we can do anything because we're superior soldiers and we're on a superior mission. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. And that, that that flawed idea was inculcated in 1939 and 40 when the Japanese Navy had gone into China and had gone into Southeast Asia. And then in 41, it ran, it absolutely ran wild for three or four months. Mm-hmm. And it said one nine wars, but what they never said was who was the enemy? What were the conditions under which we attacked and what would happen if we cannot any further use surprise attack and we have to fight, countries with far more resources, and how do we get to them? They never ask this question. Hmm. And uh, Hitler, as the war went on, repeatedly surrounded himself with toadies like like Keitel and Yodel, right? 
Yes, he did. Keitel and and Keitel was probably the worst. Uh, and Villamont was not very good. He had very good, uh, of course. And Paulus was a toady as well, and a commander that really made a lot of stupid mistakes with Sixth Army. But he had some brilliant people: von Manstein, Guderian, Rommel, Klug. Um, these were really as good or better than anything in the Allied armies. The problem was that um, they had a supreme leadership that was just awful right. in, in terms of making tactical or strategical or operational choices. We we were a little different. Our four-star commanders, and I might be controversial, but we, they were not all that good as strategic thinkers or operational officers. I'm talking mostly about Omar Bradley, Dwight Eisenhower, Mark Clark, Courtney yeah. Hodges, maybe even MacArthur, but at the level right below them, the Army commanders, boy, when you start to look at Curtis LeMay in terms of error or Nimitz or Halsey or Spruance or Patton or Truscott, they were just phenomenal. Um, Matthew Ridgway at the, at the two-star level or um, Wade Houslip. These people were really amazing to be from a so-called peacetime military and then just going to roll. I don't think there's anybody was as, as adroit or as imaginative as Curtis LeMay, mm -hmm. and yet um, they were much better than the Luftwaffe or the Kriegsmarine, American military officers, especially in the Navy and the Air Force, Army Air Force. Right. And and you point out as well that the uh, the, the where the governments of the uh, major Axis powers were all similarly fascist and authoritarian they they did not coordinate but the very diverse american british and russian governments did collaborate much better uh in, at least for the the british and the americans what role did having a maybe maybe not open government structure but accountability to a public uh what what role did that I think that, that was very important more? yeah i think that was very important because two of the three were transparent societies and, and they had to win public support. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of their decisions were through consensus and through you know, disagreement, hashing it out, uh, changing, adopting an idea, whether it was a weapon system or a treaty or a strategy. And that meant that for all the faults of the Soviet Union, they actually did cooperate. When we went into D-Day, they had an offensive. We wanted to offer them 20% of their munitions through Lindley's, they gave us things they could do and things they couldn't do. Um, if they had a non-aggression attack with the Japanese, which we really resented, after all, they were having American ships leave Seattle or Portland and go all the way uh, to Vladivostovic. Unity, the Japanese would just wave them by where the Japanese were killing us. But we cooperated in that sense. When Hitler heard of Pearl Harbor, he didn't know where it was. When he, it, Mussolini heard of the invasion of Russia, he was shocked, just as Hitler had been when Mussolini went into um, the Balkans. Right. That was just suspicious. Suspicion was endemic among non-transparent, autocratic, authoritarian societies. Hmm. And um, hmm. you, you point out as well that there are often uh, there, war. War is a very paradoxical and often ironic. Condition. What role did paradox play in some of the, the, the events of the war as well? Well, I think uh, a lot. And one of them was that when Hitler 
decided to go to war with Britain, or Britain declared war, but then uh, he had captured all of Europe. Everybody thought that Britain would capitulate. The Churchill being far more strategically adroit than Hitler, they were in an impasse in, in June and July, and they had the blitz, but Hitler never asked himself a simple question. Now what? Right. <laughs> you're going to land in Britain, and how are you going to destroy the RAF when British plane production is superior to German plane production, and the supermarine Spitfire is just as good as the BF-109, and better when it's being fueled by home fields and it's flying over Britain, and you have no military lip capacity to get your troops, you know, over to Britain. That, as you know, British famous admiral said during the Napoleonic Wars, he said, "I can assure you, um, I can I cannot assure you that the French will not get to Britain, but I can assure you they won't get to Britain by sea." Hmm. And that was sort of what the, the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force did. And then, very sophisticated armor uh, concepts, but he goes into Russia with 80% of his uh, logistics powered by horses, not trucks. Mm-hmm. And then he, he, he brags that he has the best tanks in the world, but 80% of them are Mark One, Two, or Three that are all substandard, not just to the T-34 that was coming into production in Russia, but even earlier tank design. So a lot of it was myth and, and fantasy based on fighting unprepared European ally, uh, enemies. Right. It's it's a lot different attacking, say, Poland than it is attacking the Soviet Union. It is, and I think he, that was a paradox. He thought that because uh, France had suffered 250,000 wounded dead, probably 100,000 dead in just seven weeks and collapsed, then the Soviet Union surely wouldn't uh, suffer 4 million is what they, were, they had lost by August. Right after the Kiev pocket, and he thought, oh, "My God, they're going to surrender any moment." But that wasn't in Russian character. Right, there was nothing in history to suggest that that would happen. Mm-hmm. And Hitler, who prided himself on being a uh, autodidact historian, uh, should have known better. Yeah, and that's the key word, autodidact. He, right. he never had a give and take with instructors or classmates or people that were free to question his judgment. Mm-hmm. And so he he did live in a a bubble, an uncontested bubble, literally in seven or eight of these bunkers that he was his especially after Stalingrad. But um, boy, the German army and the biggest problem for the Allies is how do you deal with the strong? That's decline was superior to most other armies. and. Our answer to it was we're going to fight in the Mediterranean, on the periphery, and in North Africa, in Sicily, go up into Italy, submarine surface warfare, bombing, and in exchange for all that, as well as Lindley's, the Soviet Army is going to be one-dimensional. It has one task for its 11 million is destroyed the German Army, and it killed two out of three German soldiers, and it fulfilled that at the cost of. As I said, 27 million civilians and soldiers. Mm. But we, our, our strategy was pretty brilliant for all of our naivete in that out of 12.3 million, we only lost, if I could say only, to barbaric sense, we lost about 450 to death and disease. Mm. 0.03, I think it is, of our military was killed. And Britain's percentage was about the same, um, a little higher because they had a much smaller military. But 
how you win the war with losing 0.03 of your available manpower is pretty amazing. And I think part of it was greatly and uh, sort of, I don't mean in a Machiavellian sense, but in the Red Army for the one thing it was good at. I mean, the, the Soviet Air Force was lousy. They had no Navy. The Soviet Army had no amphibious capacity, but on Soviet soil, and a funnel attack predicated on artillery and armor superiority was unstoppable, especially by 1944, and it destroyed the German army. Well, we're running up on time, so I'll, I'll uh, enter our conclusion here. Uh, according to Christian Humanist Profile's tradition, in the spirit of hospitality, we like to give our guests the last word. So, Dr. Hansen, is there anything uh, in particular that we haven't covered that you would like to leave with our listeners to think about as they consider the Second World War? Well, I think in the American, especially at the holidays, this Thanksgiving, in the American sense, uh, there were 16 million Americans that served in this 12 million man army. And uh, I think there's only 500,000 of them left. And a lot of the problems that we face, both moral, ethical, political, cultural, social, economic, uh, I think can, can be traced in some sense to the diminishment and the demise and the disappearance of that generation. They were quite rare coming out of the Depression, winning that war, and they had an ideology or a credo um, that was you didn't have to be perfect to be good, and you just pressed on. So whether it was the moon, going to the moon, or building the California Water Project or the highway system, and they had a very practical, pragmatic um confidence about them. I know that that generation smoked too much and ate too much and drove too fast, but there was something about them that gave us confidence, kind of a cocky can-do, and it was warranted. And I think now, as they pass that idea or that, that view of the world or the human condition, sort of tragic as well, hasn't really been passed on. And, and I'm worried that the uh, the abyss. I know uh, we have wonderful fighters that went to Iraq and, and Afghanistan, but I'm talking more about the larger generation that also supported the war, and they they had a different view. And from the people who worked in Willow Run building a, a B-24 one an hour to Pajama Boy sipping hot chocolate in a, in a healthcare ad, it's almost like it's a Mars to Earth. So I think really at this holiday we have to stop and really give some appreciation for a generation that gave almost all of what we have we inherited from them and then ask ourselves, did we pass it on and improve it morally or ethically? Hmm. I'm not sure that's true, and that's sort of a depressing thought. But on holidays, I think we should stop and reflect on that so-called greatest generation or the old breed, just what they did and who they were and what they can teach us. Definitely. Uh, Dr. Hansen, thank you for talking to us today. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, the book is The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. It's available from basic books and uh, pretty easy to find. I've seen it on the display table at Barnes & Noble every time I've been in there recently. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. I'm Jordan Poss, reminding our listeners to go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.